Letter 17 On Philosophy and Riches Cast away everything of that sort if you are wise. Nay, rather that you may be wise. Strive toward a sound mind at top speed and with your whole strength. If any bond holds you back, untie it or sever it. But, you say, my estate delays me. I wish to make such disposition of it that it may suffice for me when I have nothing to do, lest either poverty be a burden to me or I myself a burden to others. You do not seem, when you say this, to know the strength and power of that good which you are considering. You do indeed grasp the all-important thing, the great benefit which philosophy confers, but you do not yet discern accurately its various functions, nor do you yet know how great is the help we receive from philosophy in everything, everywhere. How, to use Cicero's language, it not only succors us in the greatest matters, but also descends to the smallest. Take my advice. Call wisdom into consultation. She will advise you not to sit forever at your ledger. Doubtless your object, what you wish to attain by such postponement of your studies, is that poverty may not have to be feared by you. But what if it is something to be desired? Riches have shut off many a man from the attainment of wisdom. Poverty is unburdened and free from care. When the trumpet sounds, the poor man knows that he is not being attacked. When there is a cry of fire, he only seeks a way of escape and does not ask what he can save. If the poor man must go to sea, the harbor does not resound, nor do the wharves bustle with the retinue of one individual. No throng of slaves surrounds the poor man. Slaves for whose mouths the master must covet the fertile crops of regions beyond the sea. It is easy to fill a few stomachs, when they are well trained and crave nothing else but to be filled. Hunger costs but little. Squeamishness costs much. Poverty is contented with fulfilling pressing needs. Why, then, should you reject philosophy as a comrade? Even the rich man copies her ways when he is in his senses. If you wish to have leisure for your mind, either be a poor man or resemble a poor man. Study cannot be helpful unless you take pains to live simply, and living simply is voluntary poverty. Away, then, with all excuses like, I have not yet enough. When I have gained the desired amount, then I shall devote myself wholly to philosophy. And yet, this ideal which you are putting off and placing second to other interests should be secured first of all. You should begin with it. You retort, I wish to acquire something to live on. Yes, but learn while you are acquiring it. For if anything forbids you to live nobly, nothing forbids you to die nobly. There is no reason why poverty should call us away from philosophy, no nor even actual want. For when hastening after wisdom, we must endure even hunger. Men have endured hunger when their towns were besieged, and what other reward for their endurance did they obtain than that that they did not fall under the conqueror's power? How much greater is the promise of the prize of everlasting liberty, and the assurance that we need fear neither God nor man? Even though we starve, we must reach that goal. Armies have endured all manner of want, 
have lived on roots, and have resisted hunger by means of food too revolting to mention. All this they have suffered to gain a kingdom, and, what is more marvelous, to gain a kingdom that will be another's. Will any man hesitate to endure poverty in order that he may free his mind from madness? Therefore, one should not seek to lay up riches first. One may attain to philosophy, however, even without money for the journey. It is indeed so. After you have come to possess all other things, should you then wish to possess wisdom also? Is philosophy to be the last requisite in life, a sort of supplement? Nay, your plan should be this. Be a philosopher now, whether you have anything or not. For if you have anything, how do you know that you have not too much already? But if you have nothing, seek understanding first before anything else. But, you say, I shall lack the necessities of life. In the first place, you cannot lack them, because nature demands but little, and the wise man suits his needs to nature. But if the utmost pinch of need arrives, he will quickly take leave of life and cease being a trouble to himself. If, however, his means of existence are meager and scanty, he will make the best of them without being anxious or worried about anything more than the bare necessities. He will do justice to his belly and his shoulders. With free and happy spirit he will laugh at the bustling of rich men and the flurried ways of those who are hastening after wealth, and say, Why of your own accord postpone your real life to the distant future? Shall you wait for some interest to fall due, or for some income on your merchandise, or for a place in the will of some wealthy old man, when you can be rich here and now? Wisdom offers wealth in ready money, and pays it over to those in whose eyes she has made wealth superfluous. These remarks refer to other men. You are nearer the rich class. Change the age in which you live, and you have too much. But in every age, what is enough remains the same. I might close my letter at this point if I had not got you into bad habits. One cannot greet Parthian royalty without bringing a gift, and in your case I cannot say farewell without paying a price. But what of it? I shall borrow from Epicurus. The acquisition of riches has been for many men not an end, but a change of troubles. I do not wonder, for the fault is not in the wealth, but in the mind itself. That which had made poverty a burden to us has made riches also a burden. Just as it matters little whether you lay a sick man on a wooden or on a golden bed, for whithersoever he be moved he will carry his malady with him, so one need not care whether the diseased mind is bestowed upon riches or upon poverty. His malady goes with the man. Farewell. Letter 19 On Worldliness and Retirement I leap for joy whenever I receive letters from you, for they fill me with hope. They are now not mere assurances concerning you, but guarantees. And I beg and pray you to proceed in this course, for what better request could I make of a friend than one which is to be made for his own sake? If possible, withdraw yourself from all the business of which you speak, and if you cannot do this, 
tear yourself away. We have dissipated enough of our time already. Let us in old age begin to pack up our baggage. Surely there is nothing in this that men can begrudge us. We have spent our lives on the high seas. Let us die in harbor. Not that I would advise you to try to win fame by your retirement. One's retirement should neither be paraded nor concealed. Not concealed, I say, for I shall not go so far in urging you as to expect you to condemn all men as mad, and then seek out for yourself a hiding place and oblivion. Rather, make this your business, that your retirement be not conspicuous, though it should be obvious. In the second place, while those whose choice is unhampered from the start will deliberate on that other question, whether they wish to pass their lives in obscurity, in your case there is not a free choice. Your ability and energy have thrust you into the work of the world. So have the charm of your writings and the friendships you have made with famous and notable men. Renown has already taken you by storm. You may sink yourself into the depths of obscurity and utterly hide yourself, yet your earlier acts will reveal you. You cannot keep lurking in the dark. Much of the old gleam will follow you wherever you fly. Peace you can claim for yourself without being disliked by anyone, without any sense of loss, and without any pangs of spirit. For what will you leave behind you that you can imagine yourself reluctant to leave? Your clients? But none of these men courts you for yourself. They merely court something from you. People used to hunt friends, but now they hunt pelf. If a lonely old man changes his will, the morning caller transfers himself to another door. Great things cannot be bought for small sums. So reckon up whether it is preferable to leave your own true self, or merely some of your belongings. Would that you had had the privilege of growing old amid the limited circumstances of your origin, and that fortune had not raised you to such heights. You were removed far from the sight of wholesome living by your swift rise to prosperity, by your province, by your position as procurator, and by all that such things promise. You will next acquire more important duties, and after them still more. And what will be the result? Why wait until there is nothing left for you to crave? That time will never come. We hold that there is a succession of causes from which fate is woven. Similarly, you may be sure there is a succession in our desires, for one begins where its predecessor ends. You have been thrust into an existence which will never of itself put an end to your wretchedness and your slavery. Withdraw your chafed neck from the yoke. It is better that it should be cut off once and for all than galled forever. If you retreat to privacy, everything will be on a smaller scale, but you will be satisfied abundantly. In your present condition, however, there is no satisfaction in the plenty which is heaped upon you on all sides. Would you rather be poor and sated, or rich and hungry? Prosperity is not only greedy, but it also lies exposed to the greed of others. And as long as nothing satisfies you, you yourself cannot satisfy others. But, you say, how can I take my leave? Any way you please. Reflect how many hazards you have ventured for the sake of money, and how much toil you have undertaken for a title. You must dare something to gain leisure also, 
or else grow old amid the worries of procuratorships abroad, and subsequently of civil duties at home, living in turmoil and in ever-fresh floods of responsibilities, which no man has ever succeeded in avoiding by unobtrusiveness or by seclusion of life. For what bearing on the case has your personal desire for a secluded life? Your position in the world desires the opposite. What if, even now, you allow that position to grow greater? But all that is added to your successes will be added to your fears. At this point I should like to quote a saying of Mycanus, who spoke the truth when he stood on the very summit. There is thunder, even on the loftiest peaks. If you ask me in what book these words are found, they occur in the volume entitled Prometheus. He simply meant to say that these lofty peaks have their tops surrounded with thunderstorms. But is any power worth so high a price that a man like you would ever, in order to obtain it, adopt a style so debauched as that? Mycanus was indeed a man of parts, who would have left a great pattern for Roman oratory to follow had his good fortune not made him effeminate, nay, had it not emasculated him. An end like his awaits you also, unless you forthwith shorten sail and, as Mycanus was not willing to do until it was too late, hug the shore. This saying of Mycanus's might have squared my account with you, but I feel sure, knowing you, that you will get out an injunction against me, and that you will be unwilling to accept payment of my debt in such crude and debased currency. However that may be, I shall draw on the account of Epicurus. He says, You must reflect carefully beforehand with whom you are to eat and drink, rather than what you are to eat and drink. For a dinner of meats without the company of a friend is like the life of a lion or a wolf. This privilege will not be yours unless you withdraw from the world. Otherwise, you will have as guests only those whom your slave secretary sorts out from the throng of callers. It is, however, a mistake to select your friend in the reception hall or to test him at the dinner table. The most serious misfortune for a busy man who is overwhelmed by his possessions is that he believes men to be his friends when he himself is not a friend to them and that he deems his favors to be effective in winning friends, although, in the case of certain men, the more they owe, the more they hate. A trifling debt makes a man your debtor. A large one makes him an enemy. What, you say, do not kindnesses establish friendships? They do, if one has had the privilege of choosing those who are to receive them and if they are placed judiciously, instead of being scattered broadcast. Therefore, while you are beginning to call your mind your own, meantime apply this maxim of the wise. Consider that it is more important who receives a thing than what it is he receives. Farewell. Letter 21 On the Renown which my writings will bring you. Do you conclude that you are having difficulties with those men about whom you wrote to me? Your greatest difficulty is with yourself, for you are your own stumbling block. You do not know what you want. 
you are better at approving the right course than at following it out. You see where the true happiness lies, but you have not the courage to attain it. Let me tell you what it is that hinders you, inasmuch as you do not of yourself discern it. You think that this condition, which you are to abandon, is one of importance, and after resolving upon that ideal state of calm into which you hope to pass, you are held back by the luster of your present life, from which it is your intention to depart, just as if you were about to fall into a state of filth and darkness. This is a mistake, Lucilius. To go from your present life into the other is a promotion. There is the same difference between these two lives as there is between mere brightness and real light. The latter has a definite source within itself. The other borrows its radiance. The one is called forth by an illumination coming from the outside, and anyone who stands between the source and the object immediately turns the latter into a dense shadow. But the other has a glow that comes from within. It is your own studies that will make you shine and will render you eminent. Allow me to mention the case of Epicurus. He was writing to Idomeneus and trying to recall him from a showy existence to sure and steadfast renown. Idomeneus was at that time a minister of state who exercised a rigorous authority and had important affairs in hand. If, said Epicurus, you are attracted by fame, my letters will make you more renowned than all the things which you cherish and which make you cherished. Did Epicurus speak falsely? Who would have known of Idomeneus had not the philosopher thus engraved his name in those letters of his? All the grandees and satraps, even the king himself, who was petitioned for the title which Idomeneus sought, are sunk in deep oblivion. Cicero's letters keep the name of Atticus from perishing. It would have profited Atticus nothing to have an Agrippa for a son-in-law, a Tiberius for the husband of his granddaughter, and a Drusus Caesar for a great-grandson. Amid these mighty names his name would never be spoken had not Cicero bound him to himself. The deep flood of time will roll over us. Some few great men will raise their heads above it, and, though destined at the last to depart into the same realms of silence, will battle against oblivion and maintain their ground for long. That which Epicurus could promise his friend, this I promise you, Lucilius. I shall find favor among later generations. I can take with me names that will endure as long as mine. Our poet Virgil promised an eternal name to two heroes, and is keeping his promise. Blessed heroes twain, if power my song possess, the record of your name shall never be erased from out the book of time, while yet Aeneas's tribe shall keep the capital, that rock immovable, and Roman sire shall empire hold. Whenever men have been thrust forward by fortune, whenever they have become part and parcel of another's influence, they have found abundant favor. Their houses have been thronged. Only so long as they themselves have kept their position. When they themselves have left it, they have slipped at once from the memory of men. But in the case of innate ability, the respect in which it is held increases, 
and not only does honor accrue to the man himself, but whatever has attached itself to his memory is passed on from one to another. In order that Idomeneus may not be introduced free of charge into my letter, he shall make up the indebtedness from his own account. It was to him that Epicurus addressed the well-known saying, urging him to make Pythocles rich, but not rich in the vulgar and equivocal way. If you wish, said he, to make Pythocles rich, do not add to his store of money, but subtract from his desires. This idea is too clear to need explanation and too clever to need reinforcement. There is, however, one point on which I would warn you, not to consider that this statement applies only to riches. Its value will be the same no matter how you apply it. If you wish to make Pythocles honorable, do not add to his honors, but subtract from his desires. If you wish Pythocles to have pleasure forever, do not add to his pleasures, but subtract from his desires. If you wish to make Pythocles an old man, filling his life to the full, do not add to his years, but subtract from his desires. There is no reason why you should hold that these words belong to Epicurus alone. They are public property. I think we ought to do in philosophy as they are wont to do in the Senate. When someone has made a motion, of which I approve to a certain extent, I ask him to make his motion in two parts, and I vote for the part which I approve. So, I am all the more glad to repeat the distinguished words of Epicurus, in order that I may prove to those who have recourse to him through a bad motive, thinking that they will have in him a screen for their own vices, that they must live honorably, no matter what school they follow. Go to his garden and read the motto carved there. Stranger, here you will do well to tarry. Here our highest good is pleasure. The caretaker of that abode, a kindly host, will be ready for you. He will welcome you with barley meal and serve you water also in abundance with these words. Have you not been well entertained? This garden, he says, does not whet your appetite. It quenches it. Nor does it make you more thirsty with every drink. It slakes the thirst by a natural cure, a cure that demands no fee. This is the pleasure in which I have grown old. In speaking with you, however, I refer to those desires which refuse alleviation, which must be bribed to cease. For in regard to the exceptional desires which may be postponed, which may be chastened and checked, I have this one thought to share with you. A pleasure of that sort is according to our nature, but it is not according to our needs. One owes nothing to it. Whatever is expended upon it is a free gift. The belly will not listen to advice. It makes demands, it importunes. And yet it is not a troublesome creditor. You can send it away at small cost, provided only that you give it what you owe not merely all you are able to give. Farewell. Letter 20 On Practicing What You Preach
If you are in good health, and if you think yourself worthy of becoming at last your own master, I am glad. For the credit will be mine if I can drag you from the floods in which you are being buffeted without hope of emerging. This, however, my dear Lucilius, I ask and beg of you, on your part, that you let wisdom sink into your soul, and test your progress not by mere speech or writings, but by stoutness of heart and decrease of desire. Prove your words by your deeds. Far different is the purpose of those who are speech-making and trying to win the approbation of a throng of hearers, far different that of those who allure the ears of young men and idlers by many-sided or fluent argumentation. Philosophy teaches us to act, not to speak. It exacts of every man that he should live according to his own standards, that his life should not be out of harmony with his words, and that, further, his inner life should be of one hue and not out of harmony with all his activities. This, I say, is the highest duty and the highest proof of wisdom, that deed and word should be in accord, that a man should be equal to himself under all conditions and always the same. But, you reply, who can maintain the standard? Very few, to be sure, but there are some. It is indeed a hard undertaking, and I do not say that the philosopher can always keep the same pace, but he can always travel the same path. Observe yourself, then, and see whether your dress and your house are inconsistent, whether you treat yourself lavishly and your family meanly, whether you eat frugal dinners and yet build luxurious houses. You should lay hold, once for all, upon a single norm to live by, and should regulate your whole life according to this norm. Some men restrict themselves at home, but strut with swelling port before the public. Such discordance is a fault, and it indicates a wavering mind which cannot yet keep its balance. And I can tell you, further, whence arise this unsteadiness and disagreement of action and purpose. It is because no man resolves upon what he wishes, and, even if he has done so, he does not persist in it, but jumps the track. Not only does he change, but he returns and slips back to the conduct which he has abandoned and abjured. Therefore, to omit the ancient definitions of wisdom, and to include the whole manner of human life, I can be satisfied with the following. What is wisdom? Always desiring the same things, and always refusing the same things. You may be excused from adding the little proviso that what you wish should be right, since no man can always be satisfied with the same thing, unless it is right. For this reason men do not know what they wish, except at the actual moment of wishing. No man ever decided once and for all to desire or to refuse. Judgment varies from day to day, and changes to the opposite making many a man pass his life in a kind of game. Press on, therefore, as you have begun. Perhaps you will be led to perfection, or to a point which you alone understand is still short of perfection. But what, you say, will become of my crowded household without a household income? If you stop supporting that crowd, it will support itself. Or perhaps you will learn by the bounty of poverty what you cannot learn by your own bounty.
poverty will keep for you your true and tried friends. You will be rid of the men who are not seeking you for yourself, but for something which you have. Is it not true, however, that you should love poverty, if only for this single reason, that it will show you those by whom you are loved? Oh, when will that time come when no one shall tell lies to compliment you? Accordingly, let your thoughts, your efforts, your desires, help to make you content with your own self, and with the goods that spring from yourself, and commit all your other prayers to God's keeping. What happiness could come closer home to you? Bring yourself down to humble conditions, from which you cannot be ejected, and in order that you may do so with greater alacrity. The contribution contained in this letter shall refer to that subject. I shall bestow it upon you forthwith. Although you may look askance, Epicurus will once again be glad to settle my indebtedness. Believe me, your words will be more imposing if you sleep on a cot and wear rags, for in that case you will not be merely saying them, you will be demonstrating their truth. I, at any rate, Listen in a different spirit to the utterances of our friend Demetrius, after I have seen him reclining without even a cloak to cover him, and, more than this, without rugs to lie upon. He is not only a teacher of the truth, but a witness to the truth. May not a man, however, despise wealth when it lies in his very pocket? Of course. He is also great-souled, who sees riches heaped up round him, and, after wondering long and deeply because they have come into his possession, smiles and hears rather than feels that they are his. It means much not to be spoiled by intimacy with riches, and he is truly great who is poor amidst riches. Yes, but I do not know, you say, how the man you speak of will endure poverty if he falls into it suddenly. Nor do I, Epicurus, know whether the poor man you speak of will despise riches, should he suddenly fall into them. Accordingly, in the case of both, it is the mind that must be appraised, and we must investigate whether your man is pleased with his poverty, and whether my man is displeased with his riches. Otherwise, the cotbed and the rags are slight proof of his good intentions, if it has not been made clear that the person concerned endures these trials not from necessity, but from preference. It is the mark, however, of a noble spirit not to precipitate oneself into such things on the ground that they are better, but to practice for them on the ground that they are thus easy to endure. And they are easy to endure, Lucilius, when, however, you come to them after long rehearsal, they are even pleasant, for they contain a sense of freedom from care. And without this, nothing is pleasant. I hold it essential, therefore, to do as I have told you in a letter that great men have often done, to reserve a few days in which we may prepare ourselves for real poverty by means of fancied poverty. There is all the more reason for doing this, because we have been steeped in luxury and regard all duties as hard and onerous. Rather, let the soul be roused from its sleep and be prodded, and let it be reminded that nature has prescribed very little for us. No man is born rich. Every man, when he first sees light, is commanded to be content with milk and rags. Such is our beginning 
and yet kingdoms are all too small for us. Farewell. Letter 18 On Festivals and Fasting It is the month of December, and yet the city is at this very moment in a sweat. License is given to the general merrymaking. Everything resounds with mighty preparations, as if the Saturnalia differed at all from the usual business day. So true it is that the difference is nil, that I regard as correct the remark of the man who said, Once December was a month, now it is a year. If I had you with me, I should be glad to consult you and find out what you think should be done, whether we ought to make no change in our daily routine, or whether, in order not to be out of sympathy with the ways of the public, we should dine in gayer fashion and doff the toga. As it is now, we Romans have changed our dress for the sake of pleasure and holiday-making, though in former times that was only customary when the state was disturbed and had fallen on evil days. I am sure that, if I know you are right, playing the part of an umpire, you would have wished that we should be neither like the liberty-capped throng in all ways, nor in all ways unlike them, unless, perhaps, this is just the season when we ought to lay down the law to the soul, and bid it be alone in refraining from pleasures just when the whole mob has let itself go in pleasures, for this is the surest proof which a man can get of his own constancy if he neither seeks the things which are seductive and allure him to luxury, nor is led into them. It shows much more courage to remain dry and sober when the mob is drunk and vomiting, but it shows greater self-control to refuse to withdraw oneself and to do what the crowd does, but in a different way, thus neither making oneself conspicuous nor becoming one of the crowd. For one may keep holiday without extravagance. I am so firmly determined, however, to test the constancy of your mind that, drawing from the teachings of great men, I shall give you also a lesson. Set aside a certain number of days, during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, Is this the condition that I feared? It is precisely in times of immunity from care that the soul should toughen itself beforehand for occasions of greater stress, and it is while fortune is kind that it should fortify itself against her violence. In days of peace the soldier performs maneuvers, throws up earthworks with no enemy in sight, and wearies himself by gratuitous toil, in order that he may be equal to unavoidable toil. If you would not have a man flinch when the crisis comes, Train him before it comes. Such is the course which those men have followed who, in their imitation of poverty, have every month come almost to want, that they might never recoil from what they had so often rehearsed. You need not suppose that I mean meals like Timon's, or pauper's huts, or any other device which luxurious millionaires use to beguile the tedium of their lives. Let the palate be a real one and the coarse cloak. Let the bread be hard and grimy. Endure all this for three or four days at a time, sometimes for more, that it may be a test of yourself instead of a mere hobby. Then I assure you, my dear Lucilius, 
You will leap for joy when filled with a pennyworth of food, and you will understand that a man's peace of mind does not depend upon fortune. For, even when angry, she grants enough for our needs. There is no reason, however, why you should think that you are doing anything great, for you will merely be doing what many thousands of slaves and many thousands of poor men are doing every day. But you may credit yourself with this item, that you will not be doing it under compulsion, and that it will be as easy for you to endure it permanently as to make the experiment from time to time. Let us practice our strokes on the dummy. Let us become intimate with poverty, so that fortune may not catch us off our guard. We shall be rich with all the more comfort if we once learn how far poverty is from being a burden. Even Epicurus, the teacher of pleasure, used to observe stated intervals, during which he satisfied his hunger in niggardly fashion. He wished to see whether he thereby fell short of full and complete happiness, and if so, by what amount he fell short, and whether this amount was worth purchasing at the price of great effort. At any rate, he makes such a statement in the well-known letter written to Polyinus in the archonship of Carinus. Indeed, he boasts that he himself lived on less than a penny, but that Metrodorus, whose progress was not yet so great, needed a whole penny. Do you think that there can be fullness on such fare? Yes. And there is pleasure also. Not that shifty and fleeting pleasure which needs a fillip now and then, but a pleasure that is steadfast and sure. For though water, barley meal, and crusts of barley bread are not a cheerful diet, yet it is the highest kind of pleasure to be able to derive pleasure from this sort of food, and to have reduced one's needs to that modicum which no unfairness of fortune can snatch away. Even prison fare is more generous, and those who have been set apart for capital punishment are not so meanly fed by the man who is to execute them. Therefore, what a noble soul must one have, to descend of one's own free will to a diet which even those who have been sentenced to death have not to fear. This is indeed forestalling the spear-thrusts of fortune. So begin, my dear Lucilius, to follow the custom of these men, and set apart certain days on which you shall withdraw from your business, and make yourself at home with the scantiest fare. Establish business relations with poverty. Dare, O oh my friend, to scorn the sight of wealth, and mold thyself to kinship with thy God. For he alone is in kinship with God, who has scorned wealth. Of course, I do not forbid you to possess it, but I would have you reach the point at which you possess it dauntlessly. This can be accomplished only by persuading yourself that you can live happily without it as well as with it, and by regarding riches always as likely to elude you. But now I must begin to fold up my letter. Settle your debts first, you cry. Here is a draft on Epicurus. He will pay down the sum. Ungoverned anger begets madness. You cannot help knowing the truth of these words, since you have had not only slaves, but also enemies. But indeed, this emotion blazes out against all sorts of persons. It springs from love as much as from hate, and shows itself not less in serious matters than in jest and sport. 
and it makes no difference how important the provocation may be, but into what kind of soul it penetrates. Similarly with fire, it does not matter how great is the flame, but what it falls upon. For solid timbers have repelled a very great fire. Conversely, dry and easily inflammable stuff nourishes the slightest spark into a conflagration. So it is with anger, my dear Lucilius. The outcome of a mighty anger is madness, and hence anger should be avoided, not merely that we may escape excess, but that we may have a healthy mind. Farewell.